Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. There's this really weird idiosyncratic thing that happens with me I, I, I've written my entire life. I say that I was born a writer. It doesn't mean that I'm good. It just means that I find it writing a very natural thing to do. But I always wrote for myself. I didn't write for other people. Like in school, I had to write, of course, and they would publish something in the school paper. And I've written probably novels that have not been published because I don't want people to read what I write if it reveals anything about me. That was Chaz Ebert. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. I have known Chaz Ebert for six, seven years now, and uh, we have done only one interview in the past. Uh, It was right after Life Itself, the film about Roger Ebert, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. You can find that interview on RogerEbert.com. It was a short talk, and since we started this show, I knew that she was going to have to come on at some point. And if you've been listening the entire time since we started in April of 2016, you may remember that I quote Roger Ebert on empathy in that first episode. It is a guiding principle of this show. So having her on here today is kind of bringing this thing full circle. That's not to say the show's done after this episode, but Chaz is 
really unlike any person I know. Uh, she is exceedingly generous. She is kind. She looks after you, even when you think you don't need to be looked after. I've never encountered another soul like her. And if I could make a bet on it, which I would never do, but if I could make a bet on it, I bet that I will never meet someone like her uh, in this lifetime again. And yet, um, despite the fact that we do know each other pretty well, uh, this was an incredibly nerve-wracking experience uh, in the beginning for both of us. Chaz does not love talking about herself, and uh, she is someone who, uh, like me, is much more comfortable asking questions. And in fact, at one point in this interview, I uh, kind of grant her uh, a small 10-minute window where she gets to ask me uh, a bunch of things that she says she's wanted to ask me for a long time. I traditionally would never let someone do this, probably because if I start letting the tables get turned, I may never get to turn them back. So this is a very peculiar episode between two people who've uh, known each other for nearly a decade. Um, She has meant the world to me in this time. I try to express it in the episode itself, but in case it doesn't come across, I uh, unequivocally, without hyperbole, would not be here uh, doing this show, trying to make movies in this creative space at all without Chaz Ebert. That's the truth. And uh, the truth is something we try to get to the bottom of uh, throughout this episode. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. So I want to thank Chaz uh, off the top for coming on Talk Easy. And uh, I want to thank you, the listener, in advance for listening to this very, very special episode. So finally, here is the one and only inimitable Chaz Ebert. Chaz Ebert, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. This is, uh, I can tell that, that, that you're a little bit nervous right oh, now. Really? I feel like you're a little bit. Can li- you tell? A little bit, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just one of those uh, probably over-eager students who I want to do well. Yes. And especially for you, Sam, I want, this is, I, you know, this is the first time I've been on your podcast and I want you to invite me back sometime. <laughs> You know, um, I'm sure it's going to go well. Okay. And I'll totally invite you back. Okay. You were an overachiever uh, as a student, right? I mean, you ran multiple clubs in high school. Yes. Did so you look Did you look it up or something? Do you know that? Oh, my God. Let me tell you why I'm surprised that you're saying that. Mm-hmm. I'm writing an article called Chaz and Verdine's High School Reunion. It's sort of a takeoff of Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion, mm-hmm. which we screened at Ebert Fest recently, David Merkin's film with uh, Lisa Kudrow and Mira Sorvino. And it made me think because oh, I hate this. I get into these situations where I start talking about something and then I remember, oh, I don't know if I really want to talk about that. But it's too late. <laughs> but I have a high school reunion coming up. And we had to look at these things 
that we did. And when I was on stage with David Merkin at Ebertfest, and he looked at me and he said, you know, most people had a terrible time in high school. And I said, yes. And he looked me in the eye because he was waiting for me to tell my experience. And I couldn't because I didn't have a terrible time. You had a good time. I had a good time. I mean, I was voted the most popular girl. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, the head of the National Honor Society. I was either president or vice president of the senior class. I was voted best dancer. You were part of a Spanish club. I was the Spanish club, the biology club. I was even in the ROTC, believe it or not. And I dropped out because they wanted the girls to march with batons, but the boys could march with rifles. And I didn't want to. I wanted, you know, equal opportunity marching. So um, so you were ambitious at a young age. Yes. I guess you could say that, although I didn't think of it that way. I wasn't ambitious. I just thought that's what everybody did. But your friends weren't doing that, right? Some were and some were not. Mm. Interestingly enough, now, you know, I don't even know. I hope I'm not messing up your podcast talking about this. Chaz, this is how you speak. This, <laughs> this is how people love to hear you speak. It, okay. it it floats from one subject to the other, and it's all connected and unified by you. Okay. So you go wherever you want to go, and right. I'll ask the next question after that. Okay. So I just want to tell you this. This high school reunion that we're planning is going to happen in June, mm-hmm. and we are actually going to march with the class of 2019 from our high school at Orchestra Hall, Hmm. where the Chicago Symphony Orchestra plays. And you went to high school on the west side of Chicago. Yes, I did. I went to Crane High School, Richard T. Crane, and it's still there. uh, It was one of the schools that was scheduled to close at one time, but we actually went back and helped fight to keep it open. And uh, they, they ended up turning it into a college prep school, and they turned our one school into four schools. Hmm. And one of the schools is named the Chaz Ebert School. Look at that. So I, who would have ever thought that? I wouldn't have, certainly. But so, but the, the reason, but I, can I just tell you this really quickly? <laughs> the reason when, when I said some do and some don't is because this committee that I'm on for high school, our high school reunion, it's really funny. It's, 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 it's made up of, we all fell back into like our high school patterns as we were doing this committee. And so Jocelyn Banks, who was Jocelyn Dorch in high school, is this go-getter who's organizing everyone. They made me the committee chair. I don't know why, but she's the co-chair. She's really the dynamic one. Right. And we have uh, some other people who are with us who are um, just, I mean, they're as on the go as they were in high school. There's one person I didn't know on the committee, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. She said, I was very quiet in high school. I watched all of you from the sidelines. So, oh, she's so sweet. I love working with her. I'm so sorry I didn't know her in high school. But the other person who I'm sort of working with is Verdine White of Earth, Wind, and Fire. We were friends in high school. Oh, my God. Yeah, and we're still friends today. So we're trying to get him to come to the reunion. Verdine, if you're listening to this, I hope you do come. <laughs> so I, I have a question because you are clearly an accomplished student in high school. Mm, maybe. Mm-hmm. We'll say you are. Okay. 
for the, just because of the facts that we have. Maybe, right. maybe you didn't believe you were, but I think the facts would suggest that, that, that you were, not to mention the fact you are offered a scholarship at the University of Chicago. Yes. A scholarship that you reject. Yes. And then you oh my God. leave Chicago. Because you you want to get away from home. It seems like you wanted to like... Oh my God, did I say that somewhere? It's all true. This sounds like this is your life. Oh my God. That's that's the alternate name of this podcast. Okay. This is your life. <laughs> Talk uh, easy. That's a nice name too. <laughs> thank you. So I have a question. When you're 18, mm-hmm. if you could think back on that time. I was 16 when I graduated. Why did you want to leave? Why did I want to leave Chicago? Mm-hmm. Well, because I had grown up. I grew up on the west side of Chicago. My mother loved to travel. My dad was this really stable, earthbound guy, and he didn't like to travel much. He liked being at home. He loved the home, you know, the 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 home life my mom made for him and the children. But my mother, I think I take after her, had this wanderlust to just travel and go out. So she would take us out of school to go on train trips. But other than that, I hadn't gone much out of town as an adult. And so I wanted to see something outside of Chicago. I I read a lot, and I wanted to see this big, wide world. Although it's funny that the big, wide world took me to Dubuque, Iowa. (laughs) Which I was surprised by. Yeah. That's the place you end up landing. Yes. And which turned out to be good for me at that time. But I'll tell you why I landed there. It almost makes me a little sad to tell you why, because it's a character defect. I waited too long to accept all of the offers that were pouring in. (laughs) And I missed some of the dates. And so um, anyway. Does that upset you? It upsets me that I have to admit that. Yeah, I I don't I have no regrets about how my life turned out. What's yeah. the defect? Procrastination. Ah, uh, yeah. Procrastination. Mm-hmm. Which you think was there at 18, 16, and 17. And it's still there now. It's still there today, yes. I tend to ponder things instead of jumping. Sometimes I can see something and I see it's an opportunity and I don't want to miss it and I jump at it mm-hmm. right away. Other times, I spend too much time intellectualizing things, which helped me when I was a trial attorney because I considered all the angles, this and that. What if if this, then that? How do you respond? Is this the best situation? All of that. But sometimes you need to just make a decision and move on. I've always seen that quality in you as, as someone who's worked for you. I thought... Well, one, you're just really busy. I always feel like you have yeah. seven things happening. It's true. Uh, that you don't, you really don't want to make a mistake. Like you want to get it right. If you're going to make yeah. a decision, you want to get it right. You don't want to do yeah. it haphazardly. Yes. You did hit the nail on the head. I do a lot of things. I did a lot of things when I was in high school. I did a lot of things. I'm always doing a lot of things, joining a lot of committees. Today, one of the things that I find it easier to do is say no. I used to say yes to just about everything, and it was too much because I was overextended. And now I try to be really dedicated to whatever I, I, if I say yes to a project or if I say yes to anything, I really try to spend enough time to get it right. 
having said that, I'm not afraid to make a mistake. I know you have to take risks in life, and mm-hmm. I know you have to be willing to make mistakes to do things. And I'm not afraid to make a mistake. I don't want it to be a mistake, though, that's made just lightly. I don't want to make a mistake that if I had been paying attention, wouldn't have happened. Everybody can make a mistake. I think so. a good case of you jumping into a situation, which I think you're good at. I, I, I feel like you're someone who will take risks. Yes. When you are in college and then throughout your early 20s, you are part of uh, the civil rights movement that's happening. Yes, I was. What are your memories from that, from that period? I remember when I learned about, let's say, voting for the right to vote. And in, in school, we learned about things like the poll tax and literacy tests that my mom and my dad and some of my relatives in the South that were used against them as challenges to their right to vote. And when I think about things like that, and I think, how could that be? And what can we do to prevent that from ever happening again? And so, yeah, I got involved in the civil rights movement. You know, I actually marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What was the energy like within that community in that era? Well, as a student activist, it was very exciting because you felt like you actually had the power to help change the world. And that if you were not doing it, you know, why, if you had the opportunity to do it? I remember working with, I still keep in touch with some of the students that we, we marched with. I remember being in, in, at university and, and leaving to, to join some students at other universities. And I remember being asked to speak on the same stage as Angela Davis and, you know, some of the people who were in Shirley Chisholm and, and some of those really dynamic women who really were helping to change the world. I don't know. I think I think my parents were, were proud of me for wanting to, to do things because that's the way we were we were raised to, to do something. Don't just sit back and say it's somebody else's problem. It's all of our problems. And mm. so um and it was exciting to work with students who were bright and committed and who thought about a cause bigger than themselves. Mm. Yeah. Is it around this time that you get married and have children of your own? I had two children while I was, both my daughter and my son were born while I was still in college. Yes. I was married. I had children. They used to go to class with me sometimes. Oh, my God. Back then, it was accepted. They actually had daycare centers on the school grounds. They had the benefit of being taught by all these people who were experimenting with different things and in child care and who were really excited about seeing children thrive. So it was it was kind of an exciting time. And also because I came from a large family, people used to the students used to come to our house. I didn't know how to cook for one person or, or two people. <laughs> so I made a lot of food and so the students would love to hang out at our house because they knew that I was always instead in, in addition to studying and taking care of the kids, I was also cooking and doing everything. I don't know. Did you ever feel overwhelmed going to school and having kids and being married at at an age that that I'm kind of at right now? You know what? I have to admit that back then, no, I did not feel overwhelmed because it it just seemed like it was something that because I had never really had the experience. I got married so young and had my kids so young, I didn't really have that experience of being that carefree, so... 
and my husband was lovely. No. Now when I look back on it, yeah. or I see kids who are my age. It's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of responsibility. I couldn't do it again. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I don't even know how I did it then, but I certainly couldn't do it now. But that seems to be true about most of your life. Is I, I would look at it and think, I don't know how you can do it, but you got through it. Yeah. Some things you do just because how can you not do them? I mean, mm. I don't know. Was that becoming an attorney for you? Was that something you felt like you had to do? Well, it's something I wanted. I From the time I was six years old, I knew I was going to be an attorney one day because my next-door neighbor, Clayton Mitchell, I want to find him. I want to find him one day. I hope he's uh, around somewhere because I haven't talked to him for years. But he was the person who I knew he was going to be an attorney, and he was the only one in my neighborhood who ever talked about being an attorney. I didn't grow up in a neighborhood of attorneys and a lot of professional people. I came from a very working-class neighborhood, but Clayton, he was always reading books and talking about the law, and I think I used to watch Perry Mason with him or something, Mm. but I knew I was going to be an attorney, and so, but I also knew that one day I would stop. I said, I want to be an attorney, but one day I want to stop practicing law and become a philanthropist. I don't even know where I got those ideas because it was in third grade before I realized that I wanted to be a philanthropist. Mm. But my teacher laughed at me and said, you can't be a philanthropist because you don't have any money. <laughs> that's, so. that's the job requirement. Yeah. <laughs> was there something about law that attracted you? It wasn't law. It, was, it wasn't the regulation so much as it was the idea of advocating for someone else which is still a really important part of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm, and I'm probably overanalyzing this as I tend to do. That's part of the show oh. also, though, is overanalyzing. Okay. It's all overanalyzing. <laughs> well, you say talk easy. Easy is not uh, overanalyzing. Well, it's, I think the talk easy name, I don't really want to get into the philosophy, but I think, okay. I think it's, it's like the, the, the talking itself may be... Uh, challenging mm-hmm. but it should uh flow from you naturally okay and All i right. think that's the pu- the purpose of the show is to have two people talk mm-hmm. in a way that they feel like they have to mm-hmm. and they feel like is honest i'll tell you why it's a little difficult for me you know somebody like roger what i admire about people like roger and let's say, uh, Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Kimmel or someone who has like um, a talk show. Those people know when they go out there, part of what they're going to talk about is themselves and their personal lives. Mm -hmm. And they do it easily. There's this really weird idiosyncratic thing that happens with me. I've written my entire life. I say that I was born a writer. It doesn't mean that I'm good. It just means that I find it writing a very natural thing to do. But I always wrote for myself. I didn't write for other people. Mm. Like in school, I had to write, of course, and they would publish something in the school paper. And I've written probably novels that have not been published because I don't want people to read what I write if it reveals anything about me. That's probably one of the reasons why I like being like a lawyer, advocating for someone else. Mm. It wasn't me. I could... I'm not shy. I'm a little shy. 
people would be surprised to know that. But I could stand up and advocate for someone else all day long. Well, in a way, what you and Roger did for each other was advocacy. Weren't you both advocates of one another? I only became an advocate for him after he lost his physical voice. Mm. I mean... But he, I mean, but he I brought was... you on to the company, right? And you, you left your job at, at as a litigator. Right. And I uh, I went to work for the Ebert Company as a vice president. I guess part of that was just, yes, it was business, but also we did have this relationship, and it was something that I was doing for someone I loved. And you you have a tendency to want to protect those that you love hmm. and make sure that, People don't take advantage of them to make sure that they're getting proper rest, make sure that they're being able to express themselves creatively. Mm. When was the uh, the moment you felt like you two truly fell in love? When we were in Hawaii. I, I know that we fell in love in Hawaii, or I did anyway. Mm. He said he was already in love, but <laughs> it was something about being in Hawaii, and it's Hawaii is just, my God, it's... It's probably easy to fall in love in Hawaii. In Hawaii, he was he 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 let his guard down more. We were, you know, wearing Hawaiian garb and walking around with flowers and lays around our necks and going to. It was just a slower pace of life, and we were able to take in the the smells and the food and the beautiful way that people express themselves and the friendliness of the people and the island and 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 it just allowed us to stop and pay more attention to each other instead of all the busyness that was in our life and lives and fall in love i was committed to not rushing into anything so i think we actually started dating i'm i'm i think we were together for maybe like three years before we actually got married. So I didn't, you know, another thing, I didn't want to just rush into it. I'm amazed. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said they met their husband, and six weeks later they were married, married or engaged, maybe even married. I don't even know. Can you get a marriage license that soon? I guess they don't ask how long you've known each other. I mean, people get married in Vegas, but uh, after two days or – but. But yeah, I I kind of want to know, especially these days, that somebody's background is really their background, that they're not hiding something from me. I want to have a see how they interact with their family, because sometimes you get an indication of how they're going to treat you by how they treat their mother or their sisters or someone else in their family. You have to have a vetting process. A vetting process. You have to, you know, see how did they treat their former lovers or how do they get along with people at work or uh, do they have a social life or do they have all these things? So I like to kind of observe life and observe people before I go all in. What did you find when you were vetting Roger? I use this word and I don't use it lightly. Good. G-O-O-D. He understood why I liked that movie Breaking the Waves Mm. so much. There's a scene in Breaking the Waves in the courtroom scene when she has gone through this horrible, horrible treatment, sadistic treatment, because this man she loved was in a coma and 
she thought she was talking to God and people thought she was crazy. And she sort of made this sacrifice and said, God, if I do this, you know, will you bring him back to me? Will you bring him back alive? Will you bring him out of the coma? And um, I mean, it's, it's horrible when I really think about what happened to her. But there's a courtroom scene where he actually does come back. And he's talking in court, and they ask him to, to describe her. And he said, she was good. She was good. He uses that word, and it's so, has a lot of meaning. And, and that's what I, you know, I just think, I found that Roger was good. It doesn't mean that he was a saint. It doesn't mean that he was without fault. But I saw in him how deep and authentic his goodness was how he truly cared about other people. And I always say that it's, um, I think it was sort of a cosmic joke that his 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 professional life, he was a critic mm-hmm. because actually he didn't like being that critical of of people generally of or of people's positions or station in life. He did love, you know, taking apart and looking at critical elements of a movie or or of a book or a play it felt to me as someone just who loved reading his work he enjoyed writing about people yeah because he understood people yes and the movies were was just an extension of that Mm -hmm. you know one of my favorite articles that roger ever wrote is about this man in france who collected clocks and fixed clocks but he was an insomniac. That, I never read this. Oh, my God. You must read it. You must read it. It's one of the... I, I could just picture him, the evening that he spends with this man, but the man and the clocks, and I think it was in the town of Nancy in France. And you'll see his curiosity about people and how he loved people so much. A bigger picture question about you and Roger you had kids Mm -hmm. coming into uh, uh, this marriage right as someone who um, has step siblings myself oh I know the dynamics of that can be uh, tricky depending on the parents Mm -hmm. Um, but I also know from the writing that, that you and Roger have done about this time that it seemed like you guys were really happy fun family a family unit. we were it, it's true it's true and i think that happened because i insisted and i'm glad i did i don't even know where i got this guidance from you know how when you when you go into someone else's family you act as the intermediary between everyone if you're being introduced to their mother or their sister or their brother or their children you're the intermediary i told him that i wanted him to develop his own friendship with each of the children, I said, if we're going to have a relationship together, and I had never done this with any of the any other guy I dated. In fact, most of the guys that I dated in between didn't even really get to meet my family for whatever reason. But with Roger, I said, you have to develop your own relationship with them because he, he, he wanted to, we were going to a play. And he said, why don't we invite Jay and Sonia? I said, okay, but here's their phone numbers. I want you to call them and invite them. And he said, oh, me, I have to, I said, yeah, you pick up the phone and, and you call him and tell him that you want them to join us. Was he nervous about that? Um, 
I don't remember whether he was nervous about it. I know he was a little taken aback because usually, you know, it would be me going and doing everything. That turned out to be the best thing I did because mm. it, it created a habit and a pattern, and they knew it wasn't just me trying to, right. you know, force them to meet this new guy. It was... They knew that they were wanted. Yes. Yes. And that you and weren't he, pushing it on. Right. And he knew that they wanted to be there because I wasn't forcing them to go. Mm. They had the ability to say yes or no. And it turned out that that was great. And so by the time we married and had grandchildren, he was grandpa from day one. It wasn't, you know... There were, that's why we used to hate that people would say step-grandchildren. They were just his grandchildren, mm. and they loved him a lot. How do you think uh, you uh, and your mother compare in terms of being a, a mom? Okay, so the other thing that I—God, oh, I'm going to— Go ahead. What's that? What was all that face? Because I'm thinking, I'm talking so much about myself, but I guess that's what this a podcast is. I'm sorry, Jess. I wish we had another subject to talk about. You, you know what? Mm-hmm. How, how about this? You share this, okay. and then I'll let you ask me a question. Okay. I'll... I was going to say, can I ask you a question? I will allow that. Okay. All right. This is another thing that I know. Sometimes I even hate saying this because I was so fortunate. I was so loved in this world. So loved. My mother was one of the most kind, loving people I've ever met. She adored me. There were nine of us. I had four brothers and four sisters, and we each felt like we were the favorite. She just, I don't even know how she did that, how she was able to give each of us enough time and attention that we really thought we were her favorite. And at her funeral, I got up and I was speaking and I said, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm going to really miss my mother. She was a loving and kind mother, but I, you know, I I felt that I was her favorite child. And each one of my brothers and sisters stood up and said, no, I was the favorite. Then someone, no, I was the favorite. So this is a funny scene at the funeral. People just started laughing because they could see we all really thought we were the favorite. And we Mm -hmm. had never said that to each other. We never knew that until at her funeral. So she was very kind and loving. I can say that I love my children terrifically, but I think that even just having only two, I think I probably fell down a lot more as a mother than she did. I think I was a good mother, and they would say I'm a good mother, but I think that she was wiser than I was. I think she was probably more patient than I was, and um, yeah, I, I think I, I'm really glad I had the mother, and and I think that's probably, when, when I talk about my mission here on earth, you know, I'm always talking about the empathy, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, I feel that I was given that love and that security as a a child to go out and help instill some of it in the Mm. world. Thank you for asking about my mother. She was, uh, yeah, she was was like, really, you know, people always say this, but she really was an angel. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like you're critical of yourself? Of course I am. I had some failures as well. But I will tell you what the thing about being self-critical, I think that sometimes I'm afraid that some people that I, you know, with social media, that some people aren't self-aware enough. Right. And I don't want to fall into that thing where 
everything is always about me, me, me. I can't, you know, that's something that I uh, just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I like being, I like, you know, if it's something that I've done that I should take a compliment for, you know, I've learned how to do that and that's fine. But I also don't want things to go to my head, I guess. But that's, you know, that's kind of the generation that I was raised in, I think. Okay. So honest question. Okay. In the interest of self-awareness, as a parent, how and where did you fail and how and where did you succeed? I'll take the succeed first. I succeeded in, I think, letting my children know that they were loved and that they were, I hope they know they were loved unconditionally, no matter what happened. I failed in the fact that I, you know, it's no secret, I was actually uh, an active alcoholic at one time, and I've been in recovery for 32 years. I'm sure there were times when my kids were younger that I maybe was not as attentive as I could have been. And those mm-hmm. are the years that I'm thinking about when I, you know, sometimes maybe went home and after work and, and I would cook and I would do everything. I did all of that stuff. But, you know, maybe I sat in the family room and I wanted to have a cocktail rather than just sitting and talking to them or, or going out. You know, my daughter used to like to ride horses and we would go out as a family and we would ride horses and we did all of that stuff. But then there were times that I just wanted to just be by myself and drink because mm. I was an alcoholic. So, and I uh, I didn't mean to talk about that on your show today, but I did. That's okay. Yeah. Did you and Roger in some way bond over that? Because he also was someone who... He was a recovering alcoholic recovering as well. Alcoholic. Yeah, we did. That was... Yeah, we did bond over that because we both knew that we both were so committed a day at a time, as they say in the program, to never taking another drink. We both were so grateful to be sober. We were both were so grateful to know that, you know, by the grace of God, as they say in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, we didn't have to. And so, um, yeah, that was something that we bonded over. Did you guys ever miss drinking? No, not miss it. I mean, because you can go back and drink anytime if you want to. As they say, as they say in the program, (laughs) we will refund all of your misery. No, the answer is no, I I don't miss it. And today I just think of, you know, when I'm out and and people say, oh, do you know, I said, oh, no, you know what? I, oh, I don't drink. I choose not to drink. I choose not to drink. Mm. It's a choice today. And it wasn't a choice at one time. It was, it felt like something you needed to do. Well, it was something, you know, that you were physically and psychologically and mentally craving. And so, yeah. Mm. But you got so, through it. Yep. It's a not, day at a time. It's not easy. A day at a time. Yeah. I'm always impressed by people who can do that. Yeah. Genuinely. You know, I was that's I was so glad that that panel uh, at EbertFest talked about addiction and it was funny because some people, it felt like an AA meeting because some people who probably didn't even get up that morning and to make a public declaration that they had, you know, that they were in recovery did that day. And, and um, can, we go, but can I tell you another part where I failed, I think, sometimes as a parent? I will never forget my son, Jay, telling me and his dad, 
you guys, you know, mom and dad, you're accomplished. And I know people think our family is like the Cosby family. He said, but that's not what I want in my life. And that's, you hold me to too high of a standard. And I felt bad. I said, no, really, I want you to to be happy. I want you to figure out what it is you want to do and what's going to make you happy and do that. And he said, no, I know you. You're going to be disappointed in whatever I choose. That was hard to hear. And um, Was he right? No, he he wasn't right, but he... There are times that I, I wish that he had made other decisions, but no, I absolutely find him a joy. He was really smart, but he wouldn't do, his grades didn't reflect it. Mm-hmm. They used to say in school when I was a kid, oh, that some kid needed to apply themselves. He wasn't applying himself. Mm-hmm. I didn't want him to be disappointed in himself. You know, my daughter and I are in business together. She's a producer. And there are times when she said, you want to maintain control. Give me this and let me run with it. And I would say, oh, I want you to run with it. Take it. I want you to run with it. If I'm seeming like a control freak, it's just that I want to make sure. It goes well. Yeah, it goes well. So so those are the things when I said maybe sometimes... I feel, am, am I being too critical? Am I, you know, those are the kind of things I think about. Do you feel like you are someone who, who needs to be in control? Yeah, there are some, uh, I, I, that I can freely admit, but that's because I've had a chance to learn why. You want to know why? There's a part of me that's, uh, you know, I'm claustrophobic. And someone, this psychologist or psychiatrist or someone told me a little bit about the need to want to control your environment. Claustrophobia is something real, and it can be passed down in families. And sometimes I have a sister who was agoraphobic, and she didn't go out. She didn't even like going out of the house much. She had control of her environment. In her house, she was the queen. She was a great cook. Everybody, She loved entertaining well. Everybody would come in to her her kingdom, mm-hmm. but outside she felt less in control, I think. And so I think part of, you know, some things you can control and some things you can't. So that may be part of being a claustrophobic. I don't think it's part of not trusting people or believing in people or anything. I think it's something that they're going to find out one day. I really think one day we're going to be able to heal a lot of things like that claustrophobia, mental illness, anxiety attacks with sound. That's my thing. I think that we're going to put people on sound beds and we're going to find the right megahertz or the right Mm. tone, the right something. And I think we're going to actually be able to heal people without drugs or things that we're going to do it with sound. That's just something that I, a dream, a vision I had. Um, if it's a vision you had, then it's probably going to happen. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it will because it's beautiful. On the subject of trust, mm-hmm. I think the person you trusted most in this life was Roger, right? The person I trusted most in this life is probably me. <laughs> That's a great answer. But I, I did Roger, trust is Roger. Roger number two? I tr- 
no, my mother would probably be number two. Roger may be number three on the same level with my children. Okay. He's in the top five. Yeah, he's in the top five. And my parents and my brothers and, you know, my family. When he got sick, how did you stand strong throughout that? I don't know. I don't know. People, you know, ask. I've, I've tried to answer that question. And I think, I think I know. I try to think back on it. I think part of it is because of the, the love and security that had been given to me. The fact that there was always someone in my family. My family was so big and, and, and kind of kind and loving that there was always someone. If you were falling, there was, uh, uh, I call it my safety net. So part of that is I knew I had a safety net. I was, su- I was surrounded with people who also kind of helped lift me up and keep me going when he was sick. And, and also, I got to tell you, there's something that when you love somebody that deeply, and I didn't know that that, that was going to happen to me, but when you love somebody that deeply, you really will go to the ends of the earth to do what you can to alleviate their suffering. And so that that kind of keeps you strong. That gives you some a purpose. Well, a resiliency. Mm. It gives you a resiliency. Gosh. So, yeah. Were you ever scared for him? Oh, oh, of course, a lot. Yeah, I was scared. Was he scared? He was. Toward the end, he wasn't. But toward the end, he was embracing the idea of death. But because he looked at it philosophically and talked about when he was, uh, you know, a third grade in Catholic school and he would ask the nuns about death and they would say, boy, why do you want to talk about death all the time? <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, I'm trying to, my question, I see, but I want to talk to you for an hour. All these questions you're asking me <laughs> are all the things I want to know about you and your life, Mr. Sam Fragoso. I want to know what motivates you because you are one of the most motivated people I've met. You, I think that I could give you a, a, an assignment. And when I say assignment, I don't mean like somebody that you're working for me. I mean, just anything like people give you an assignment with life, go find love or go find, go, go start this part of this business or something. And I think you do it. You find a way to just do it. You go off and you do it. You wouldn't say, how do you want me to do it? When should it be done by? What mm-hmm. you just you just go off and do it. I find you very motivated. I like that. Well, I'll do the hour interview when you have your podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> Gosh, uh, you know, um, yeah, we only we only have a couple more questions. Okay, I will answer yours as succinctly as possible. I want to hear about what motivates you. You can tell why I, I like interviewing people. I don't. I also don't like answering questions. But um, I don't want to waste a minute of it. I don't want to waste a minute of the days that we have here. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I I see everything as a way to stay occupied mm-hmm. and to keep my brain occupied. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just much easier to keep doing something than it is to sit around. And um, I, 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 I'm always, I think like you, I feel like I have a lot to do 
and that I've done none of it, <laughs> no matter how much I do. Yeah. And that I have so much more to do. And I feel really thankful that that started to happen for me at around 16. Mm. Really around the time I met you and Roger. I, I, I can't really tell you how important it is that I met you two. Really? Yeah. I mean, when this show started, on the first episode of this show, I quote Roger on the episode. He is... His, his idea of empathy and talking to people is the foundation of this show. Mm. It's in it's in the DNA. Mm-hmm. And what you two did for me when I was 16, 17, when I wanted to be a film critic mm-hmm. and supporting me and giving me a platform, yeah, that jump-started my tenacity, my interest in thinking, you know, I just want to do as much as I can and I want to get a head start. On people, it started as getting a head start, <laughs> and and probably because I'm I'm deeply competitive, mm-hmm. and then it just persisted. It persisted in different ways, and then it was no longer about getting ahead of people, and it was more about um, filling my days in a way that I can look back on and think, God, I'm glad I did that. God, I'm glad I did that. Chris Rock has this really good joke. Now, now I have a career. I've been blessed with a career. So if you got a career, thank God. If you got a job, I hope you get a career one day. That's right. Because when you got a career, there ain't enough time in the day. There ain't enough time. When you got a career, you look at your watch, time just flies. You're like, God damn, whoa, it's 5.35. Damn, I got to come in early tomorrow and work on my project. Because there ain't enough time when you got a career. When you got a job, there's too much time. That's why you look at your watch like, ah, shit, 9.08. You don't even trust the time when you got a job. You be like, what time you got? 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 got? 9.15? Whoever got the latest time is the right time. You got the right time. You got the right time. To me, um, the, way, the reason I even feel a little funny talking about it is because I feel extremely privileged. Even though I currently have no money. <laughs> Don't worry, though. It's going to be okay, fine. All right. I will have money. All right. I'm in a temporary period of no money. Mm-hmm. I had money at some point. Now I don't. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. Mm-hmm. Because I get to do something that I love. I'm wondering, when someone is 16 and they have that kind of drive... How do you relate to other 16-year-olds? Um, you you don't, you, except for the two or three friends that you make mm-hmm. that also liked me, loved movies. Mm-hmm. And then everyone else, um, you know, I played sports. I did play basketball. I guess the other thing I want to know now is what is your, what would be your ideal situation where you could actually do what you want to do and make money as well. What What is your ideal situation? I wonder, people listening to this now will think, wow, this is strange. I've listened to 132 episodes that we've had, and uh, I've never answered so many questions on the show. But I will accept it from you because we are friends. Okay. <laughs> and, and because um, I kind of owe you everything that's happened to me. Oh my God! I really do. I really do credit you and and Roger oh, thank and you. Sonia. Oh. 
um, my ideal situation. My ideal situation is that I am directing a feature film in uh, a year and a half. Mm. That is my ideal situation. And that this show can find some source of, of basic income mm-hmm. so that it can pay f- for um, the hard work that my producers put into it, mm-hmm. that our graphic people put into it, all all of whom are working for free. Oh, wow. Please, people, donate to this show. <laughs> donate to the show that so that he can keep it going and eat and have a place to live. <laughs> Those, and his producers can get paid. Yeah, those things would be great. But I think that's my ideal situation. Mm, so directing. I think that's what I have to do. That's well, what I feel I, I'm, I'm good at. Well, people loved your uh, film, Sebastian, mm-hmm. uh, at Ebert Fest. And I, we were so glad to be able to present it. It was a wild experience. Yeah. What was that like for you? This is the last question. Okay, but you, I, wa- I want you, to know because I, know. I didn't get a chance you, to talk to you like, at Ebert Fest about you've it. You've truly hijacked this interview, Chaz. <laughs> I really like it. Um, it was incredible. I couldn't believe it. Um, another reason why I owe you guys everything. I, I really believe that the people um, that came up to me from Champaign-Urbana throughout the Midwest, mm-hmm. uh, Peoria, mm-hmm. they were so kind Everyone was Poland, someone people from Poland all over the film. place, yeah. all over the place. And I think that's it's like it motivated me so much. It made me think, oh, my God, I need to come back here. Mm-hmm. You know, the moment it finished playing and you gave me that golden thumb the whole time when I was holding that thumb, I thought, well, I really got to go make something else now. Mm-hmm. I really need to do I need to do that so that I can come back to this. And I think to, that answers really your first question about motivation is I'm always I'm always thinking about what I should be doing and mm-hmm. and the only time I feel truly happy and at ease is when I'm in the middle of that thing that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that way? No. I I I I do feel that way when I'm in the middle of I'm because I'm always in the middle of you know 5 6 7 different things. But I also have learned how important it is to take the time for renewal. Do you think you've inherited, or rather taken a page out of the playbook of Roger here when it comes to caring and guiding people? Uh, No, I I think I've taken a page out of my own. It's your own. Maybe he uh, took it from paid, you. Because I no no he we both were we both were like that. That's just that's probably one of the things that we liked about each other. Yeah, I've always been sort of someone who uh, mentored people or tried to help people do things, and so and so so was he. I ask that because the way you ask me the questions you've been asking, they have a feeling of like um, an aunt. Mm-hmm. Or a grandmother, or a mother, or just a family member yeah. asking me about that, and I, and I, in a way, I've always felt that from you. Well, I, I have kind of this earth mother quality. I do, and I know that. I know that uh, because people tell me that, <laughs> whatever that means. Is that annoying to hear? No, it's not. You know, because well, this is going to sound funny, and it's meant to be a joke, but it's also true. 
No, I'm not going to even say it. Go ahead. Nope, I'm no, not. Come on, no, you no, can't no. set it up like that. I know, I know, but I, I can't. Okay, yeah. fine. I have two questions for you. Okay. Before and you, then you can ask me as many questions as you want. Okay. I have a distinct memory of the day that Roger passed. Mm. I know exactly where I was, and I remember going to the bathroom. Where were you? What city were you? I in? was in high school. I was in Fresno. Okay. I was in high school. And I just came back from the lunch break, and right before I went into class, I saw the, uh, a voicemail from a friend of mine who said, I'm I'm really sorry, you know, about the news, about Roger. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. So I, then I went on my phone, and I Googled, and I remember the next period of class, I, like, went to the bathroom for, like, 25 minutes and just uh, bawled, mm-hmm. crying. Wow. And then I went home, and I wrote something about, his passing it was really really hard for me and painful for me and and i didn't even know him very well no at all how did you get through that it was a difficult period i especially because you know uh, as i said in the movie life itself the day he passed away was the day i went to the hospital to bring him home i was actually bringing him out of the hospital to go into hospice, but not to go into hospice because we thought he was going to die. We really thought he had two or three more years to live. We knew that the cancer had returned, but the doctor said he could live for two or three more years. When I I, I looked at him and I said, uh, we're going home today, and he smiled and he wrote, home, question mark, and he gave me this big smile, and I said, yes, and I was asking the nurses to help me get him dressed, and and I walked out of the room. I came back into the room to look at to something, to see what clothes or something, and he looked up, and he gave me this big, beautiful smile, and then he put his head down, and I thought he was meditating, but he wasn't. He was leaving. He was transitioning out, and it was a little while before we realized that was what was happening, and and yeah, it was very difficult. I mean, it's very painful and shocking. And and I, you know, screamed and, and called for them to come in to help. And, you know, the doctors came in. They brought a defibrillator. But then there was a social worker standing there who knew he had signed a do not resuscitate order. One time when I was, didn't know he had signed it, but, I mean, later I knew, of course, but and reminded the doctor not to use the defibrillator. And I was furious. I was furious. I wanted to go over and shake her. And then, as I'm crying, I, I got to remember, I got to find out the name of this nurse who took me in her arms and just held me and held me and let me cry on her shoulder. And, and then, all of a sudden, I felt it. I felt the the change in the room because this really I you know I described it as like this this just feeling this soothing beautiful feeling came over me and I knew it was kind of like him communicating with me that it's okay it's okay let go let go and I stopped crying and I got the friends and family who were there 
who had gone with me to take him home, we sat down in a circle around his bed and held hands, and I was holding his hand, and they were holding my hand, and I put on some Dave Brubeck music and just let it. It was just so beautiful in that room from there, just this one that that wind blew, and it was like a light was in the room, and I don't know if that was his spirit releasing or what it was, but it was just beautiful. So a lot of that period afterwards is is sort of a blur for me because it was, I knew that we did a lot to get, we, I don't even know how I did it, but we, we did a, you know, we had like a wake and a funeral, and then we had this big memorial service for him at the Chicago Theater for like two or 3,000 people, and we did all of this within like a, I don't know, a, maybe a one or two week period. And it was, um, I, I I don't know. I How did we get through that? That first year I was raw. And um, it's been six years now. Of course it's better. But I still feel that he is working with me. Working we like we work as a couple sometimes for things about empathy or kindness or whatever. But also, you know, we've released each other so that he's in his realm and I'm in my realm. And he wants me to be very much uh, an earth woman with my life going on. I feel like we're kind of intertwined for eternity in one sense. Kindred spirits. Kindred spirits, yeah. How do you feel? Ah, Sam, I have to tell you the truth. I feel like, oh, my God, why did I agree to do this podcast? <laughs> no, I'm glad I am glad I did, but that's only the thing about me when I say, you know, being introspective. I live in my head a lot, and I can say it to myself, but to say it to have your listeners listening, I don't know. I'm going to overanalyze it again. It's okay. I'm glad that I did this for you, and I... And I hope I made it interesting for you and for the people who are listening. It will be very painful for me to listen to it because I'm thinking, oh, God. You know, people who have reality shows, I just wonder sometimes, how can you get through each day knowing you're going to be photographed or filmed or recorded and have people look back on all of this Mm. Let me change my answer. Sam, I'm there. I'm Sam, Sam Fregoso, I am so happy I came on your show. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time with me, Sam. <laughs> you do not have to lie here. <laughs> and, and you know what? That part of it is probably not a lie. It's um, There are so many different fractions, fractals of what we are. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me, let me end on, a, on a, I think, a positive note. Okay. And, and a question for you. You and Roger are entwined in this way that I think most people only get to experience in movies and literature and in, in mm-hmm. art. It seems to be like this uh, world-class, incalculable, ineffable love that you two shared. And in turn, you have done everything to continue his legacy. And by... His legacy, I really mean... Continuing the work that we did together. Yeah. yeah. Your legacy. That is also his, and his that is also yours. In the years to come, because you have a lot of them left. I hope. Where would you like to go with it? What would make you, Chaz, happy? 
what would make me happy is if I could, if I had the ability to establish an institute where I could carry out the type of works that I do periodically in a philanthropic manner. You know, like I have the Ebert Fellows, but it would be something more than that. It would be following up with each of them to make sure that whatever work they did in the world had value so that if they came through a program, whether it's a film festival or like at the University of Illinois, we have the Ebert Fellows, a year-long program at the University of Illinois. I wish that I could be involved or have could afford to have more people involved in it to make sure that the guidance that the Ebert Fellows or anyone going through any of the programs received could result in them taking that and really going out in the world to spread whatever it looks like, whatever the kindness or compassion or forgiveness looks like, whether it's in technology or in, you know, social sciences, if it's in film or if it's in, um, you know, brain surgery or whatever. I would love to have an institute where I could do good works and where we never where we never have to worry about the money to do it. And it's not just doling out money. It's actually having some degree of control over what's what's going on. That would be my thing. I would also like to finish some of the projects I'm working on. I'm, you know, working on a, a movie about Sojourner Truth uh, with um, Latif Calloway, and I'm working on a movie about, a documentary about a woman who's going to be 97 next week, Deborah Zake, who is the founder of Rancho La Puerta and The Golden Door. I'm working on some other projects, and I would actually also like to finish... Um, Your book? I'd like to finish my book. I have to finish that. But I'd also, I want to do, um, it's kind of a, a rock opera about Mary, kind of like Jesus Christ Superstar, but it's about Mary. Mm. So a lot of different things I'm, I'm working on. I'm probably overextended again, working on so many things. And I probably, there are some other projects that I probably should have mentioned that I didn't because I'm working on so many things at once. But I'd like to have the ability this institute would also have an arm for the creative expression that I want to to do, not just the philanthropy, but the creative expression, so I can finish these projects. And if I had anything I wanted in the world, that's what I would want. That's a pretty good answer. You know, I like to be able to hire people to help me achieve that. They have to have money to be able to pay them, so... Anyway, I don't know. That's what now you now you have me thinking and you have me thinking in a way that it may sound foolish that I'm saying this, but in a way that uh, the possibilities of of what and it's something that I don't feel self-conscious about and 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 it's something that gets me excited. Mhm. Yeah. About some things that I could do. You know what? Somebody and this is some good advice somebody gave me. And that I give to young people sometimes, you know, when they say, oh, what do you want to do? And you name something, whether it's this or that, and it all seems so impossible. And somebody said, okay, how would you start? What are the first steps? Okay, maybe you take a thousand steps to get there. What are the first five steps you can take? What is the first step? What is the second step? What's the timeline for getting to the 50th step? Mm -hmm. You know, 
plotting it out like that so it doesn't seem so impossible. And that's what you you have me started on this thing. Like oh, I can maybe see this I'm glad coming I, to fruition. I'm one glad day. I did something positive here. <laughs> I thank you, Sam. Thank you for this, for giving me this opportunity today. Chaz Ebert, it was an honor. Thank you. Special thanks this week to Chaz Ebert for coming on the show. To learn more about all that she does in this world, you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. You can also learn more about Ebert Fest, um, the festival that just happened a couple weeks ago. It happens every April in Champaign-Urbana. You can visit their website at ebertfest.com. I also want to thank a handful of people who've donated to the show recently, KP Warner, Darren Pamesco of The Dog Head Project, Kaylee's Algram, and Delina Obamer. If uh, you donate to the show and you think there's a chance he may mess up my last name, uh, please write me at talkeasypod at gmail.com. Uh, I really would like to not botch uh, the pronunciation of anyone's name. Fergoso has been a last name that has been messed up uh, literally uh, an incalculable number of times. So uh, write me at talkeasypod.com for correct pronunciation. Uh, you can also write us there about guests you'd like to see on the show, feedback you have for us on the podcast, and uh, anything else. If you'd like to learn more about donating to Talk Easy, visit our website at talkeasypod.com slash donate. We're on PayPal at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And we're also on Venmo at TalkEasyPod. If you can't make a financial contribution, um, just sharing the show with a friend or uh, sharing it online through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram really helps new people find the show. As always, Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shanoi, our social media is by Crystal Farmer, our booking is by Ian Chang. Our intern is Elliot Weintraub. And the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you next week with Wyatt Snack. And uh, now, here's a song to play us out. Have a good week, everyone.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.